Uh, it's good to be with you. Thanks for all of you who are joining with us this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors here at Red Mountain, and I would love to meet you. So please do come up, say hi after the service, and introduce yourself. Uh, that would always be sweet. Another sweet thing is that we're uh, starting a new sermon series this morning. Uh, that It'll be going through the fall uh, right up until Advent. And so some of you might remember last spring when we did a series on the life of David, and, you know, looking at stories of David from the Old Testament. And um, the differences between these two series is pretty simple. In a lot of ways, we looked at the life of David as a precursor to Jesus. And so we looked at stories of David and asked the question, what is what we see David doing? Point about Jesus, his character, and is, is Jesus the perfect king over God's people? And uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a different lens that we're going to put on. We will see someone who is naive but learning. Uh, we'll see someone who is impetuous and strong-willed and yet fiercely committed to following Christ. Uh, what he's examined primarily in the context of his relationship to Peter. How does Jesus treat Peter as one of his disciples? How is Jesus patient with Peter? How does he continue to lead him? Those are, you know, some of the questions that we're going to ask as we look at, at stories of Peter. And this morning, I'm going to look at two stories that uh, describe to us some of, Jesus, some of Peter's first encounters with Jesus. And before I, I get into this, I want to just say that the order is different depending on what gospel you look at. A story of, uh, of Jesus being in Peter's house and uh, healing people. And then, of course, when he's on a lake with Peter and Peter catches a bunch of fish. Other gospels have these chronology of these stories. We can be sure that both of them significantly of who Jesus is. Uh, the other thing is, is that I uh, just know Peter as Peter. That's my famous, you know, I also include his given name, Simon. In fact, Jesus gives Peter in, in their meeting. I'll call him Peter. The text will call him Simon. I just say that because I don't want you to get confused about who I'm talking about. Okay, so let's look at these uh, stories. I'll read verses, I'll read Luke uh, chapter 4, verses 38 through 41. And he, Jesus, arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought their hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the sea, it's by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat and said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. We and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nine on the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we've heard from your word. We've spoken your word to each other. And now we ask that you would continue to speak. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And convince us again of the good story of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. Uh, Stir in us a similar awareness of Jesus that we see in Peter here in this passage. And above all, I pray that you would give us hope in the goodness that you offer to your people. Help me, your servant, to love these friends well, to honor your word with everything I say. And give me strength for these moments, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So not long ago, I watched a video of a friend of mine, and this was a man who had pastored faithfully in a church for many years, uh, announce his, uh, that he was stepping away from his position as a pastor in their church. And there was no scandal that I was aware of. I'm not referencing um, the, a megachurch pastor that's been covered in the news recently. This was just a, a guy who had uh, you know, been on a journey over the course of several months alongside a number of elders and uh, family and friends and decided that the Lord was calling him to step away from that position. It was, you know, a real significant moment. And there were two things that struck me about that when I watched that video clip. One is that I have now lost count of how many people I know that are taking a leap like this over the last two, maybe three years. Um, It's not just pastors, but it's people in all kinds of vocations that are radically changing the direction of their lives. Uh, Even some of us in the room, in this room, are right now trying out new vocations, trying new things, pursuing new avenues to devote your life to. There is something that is going on in our time, in our immediate time, that makes the idea of radical life change a little more palatable. Uh, here's the, that was the first thing. The, the second thing was this, is just the courage that that takes. Uh, there's no insignificant amount of courage that's required to upend everything that you've been investing in for some time and go in a completely new direction. There was an article that came out just a couple, just, it was one year ago, that tracked changes like this in America over the last 70 or 80 years. And uh, it noted, this was fascinating to me, it noted that people were much more prone to changing jobs in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and, uh, but something had changed in the 1980s, and speaking generally, people have been more likely to remain in a job that they don't like very much. And the reason was there, there's real fear that a safety net wouldn't support them while they looked for a new one. It really was all about a sense of risk and the existence of a safety net. It was whatever, however the risk-reward equation works out in people's heads. And something has changed, I would argue, and uh, we can talk about why, but I think it's fair to say 
that for some significant amount of people, the courage that it take the, the courage to take such a risk has been has become renewed in some way, just in our immediate time. And indeed, I'd venture to speculate that there are more people I know of that are wrestling with this kind of risk and reward equation right now when they think about their own work. Now, why am I talking about this? Uh, Because uh, all this raises a question in my mind. What do we need to know to be able to leave everything and follow a completely new path? Because that's exactly what we see Peter do at the end of this story. Verse 11 says, they left everything and followed him. When, when he walked away to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, he left behind significant things. He left a family business. He left an expensive boat on the side of a shore. He left everything that he was familiar with. He even walked away from, uh, from family members in, that, in those moments. He left everything to follow Jesus. What did he see? What did he experience? And what does he know that allowed him to make such a significant radical change in his life? To follow Jesus into an extremely unknown future. Those are the three questions I want to ask. What did Peter see? What did he experience? And what does he know that informed this incredible decision that he made? First, what did he see? Well, when Peter was first observing Jesus' work, remember these are first impressions, what he sees is Jesus demonstrating authority in all kinds of ways. And at first, it it began on the Sabbath day in his own house uh, with his mother-in-law. She was sick with a very high fever. That would have been just very dangerous uh, in that time. And Jesus demonstrated physical authority when he healed her. And then he went on to continue to demonstrate physical authority as the sun was setting and people with all kinds of diseases, like word got out about what Jesus could do. And everybody who had any kind of disease starts showing up at Peter's house and and Jesus starts healing everybody that comes. Peter also sees Jesus demonstrate spiritual authority as he casts out demons and he even rebukes them. He sits next to Peter on his own boat and teaches with some spiritual authority the the crowd that it that was at the lake. All of these are examples that Jesus carries himself with spiritual authority. And then finally, Jesus demonstrates creational authority on the lake. He somehow arranges for a massive catch of fish to to just show up in Peter's nets after uh, he had gotten completely skunked the night before. Physical, spiritual, creational authority. You see evidence of all of these in in this passage. Um, and, uh, and it seems to demonstrate just a, a robust nature of authority that Jesus operates with. And it's important to note that a similarity in each of these stories is that every time Jesus exercises his authority, he uses it on behalf of people that cannot help themselves. They couldn't, they couldn't help Peter's mother-in-law. The demon-possessed couldn't liberate themselves. 
And Peter fished all night and came up with nothing. And when Jesus brings his power to bear in the world, he uses his power to help people who can't help themselves. And I say all that to say this. It is so easy to bump up against people with power and, and be left feeling small. There was a fascinating article in the Atlantic that came out r- real recently. And it was titled this. It was the unwritten rules of shirt swapping. Okay, so it, it, uh, I'm going to just call it soccer. I know for you soccer purists, you're going to be mad at me for this, but you know. Sorry, I grew up calling it soccer. But it looked at professional soccer players that exchanged jerseys after a match. Some of you have seen this, but, um, you know, after a match, you'll see these great soccer players go up to each other and take off their jerseys and exchange it. Apparently, there's a, a, a whole array of unwritten rules about how that exchange actually happens with communication that happens, you know, by like assistant kit managers between teams and all of this. But one of the big rules is that you're only actually supposed to exchange jerseys with someone who, whose level of play is comparable to yours. So only great players are supposed to exchange with great players and then kind of on down. And as you can imagine, this can lead to some embarrassing moments or even, you know, uh, moments of sudden awareness for some players that, that, uh, that might think of themselves more highly than they should. Uh, one of those was a, a young German player with a lot of promise he played against uh, Ronaldo's team. And if you don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo at this time was, was one of the very best to be playing the game. He played against Ronaldo, this young German athlete, played against Ronaldo uh, during the height of his career. And after the game, this is what he, he ran up to, to Ronaldo and he said, Cristiano, can I have your shirt? And, uh, and apparently the way it went down was that Ronaldo didn't even look at him. He didn't even look at it. He just said no and walked away. And the player said he was completely ashamed. He said, I went away and felt small. You know that moment when something embarrassing happens and you look around to see if anybody noticed it? That's what I felt like. And I tried to hide. Now, we all know that feeling, don't we? We've all experienced it in some way. There's a way of exercising power that creates distance between people. And that's why it's important that we see whenever Jesus exercises his authority, he's doing it in such a way that closes the gap between him and the people around him. Jesus is extremely personable in these stories. Look at verse 39. When he goes to to heal Peter's mother-in-law, it says he stood over her. You get this impression that she's laying on a mat or a bed of some kind, and he's standing at the very edge, like leaning over her, attending to her. And in verse 40, he's healing people, and it says that he laid hands on every single one of them, and he healed them. You get the sense for this extremely personal and attentive care that Jesus offers When he exercises power on someone's behalf, he closes the distance between him and them. That's what Peter saw in these stories. Let me ask you a question at this point. When you think of God, do you think of someone who's far away? 
Do you think of someone whose power is so great it might make you feel small? I mean, think about your prayers if you pray. Is it ever hard for you to believe that God actually hears your prayers? Or that your concerns merit attention by an almighty God? If that's you, I want you to know I get it. I get it. But the beauty of the, beauty of the ministry of Jesus is so wonderful to look at. Because when you're observing it, you're observing nothing less than the gap between you and God himself getting smaller. In his incarnation, Jesus was drawing near and even experiencing the woes of our lives. And in his crucifixion, he was dealing he was offering a sacrifice for the very thing that, that's the biggest obstacle that we have to a relationship with God, and that is our sin. And in his resurrection, he was promising a future where nothing can ever come between us and God again. Everything about the ministry of Jesus was intended to close the gap between you and God. Every ounce of his power was exercised on behalf of those who couldn't help themselves in order to close the gap between us and him. That was what Peter saw. But what did he experience? Well, it's hard to look at these stories and not see role reversal of some kind. And every time something like that happens, it can be deeply disorienting. In the first story, Peter's mother-in-law is at Peter's house. He, He is responsible for her health. And in the second story, Jesus gets into Peter's boat and he teaches for a while. Now, all of that is kind of normal, actually. The crowd was pressing up on Jesus. Jesus actually might have been at risk of getting pushed into the sea by the crowd itself. And so he just, you know, sees a boat and sees Peter and he pushes offshore a little bit so he can sit down and teach them for a while. That's normal. Everything's normal until verse 4 when he says... Go into the deep water and let down your nets. Now, Peter addresses him with respect. This is very important. Peter addresses him with respect when he calls him master. But he does make the point that they've been fishing all night when fishing was more productive and they didn't catch anything. Now that it's day and my nets are clean, you're asking me to do this. Are you really asking me to drop the nets back in the water? His response is, if you, if you say so, okay, you know, I'll do, I'll do it. And it, to Peter R. There were really two common techniques with, uh, with, when it came to professional fishermen in that day. And the first, it, both involved, you would kind of, they would have weights on the bottom and you would kind of spin it and throw it out into the lake. And it would swoop closed and you would pull it up. That, that involved only one person. And uh, you could do it from the shore, from a boat, you know, whatever. It, it, it fished the shallow waters or the, the waters that were kind of close to the surface. Uh, usually brought in small catches. Most fishermen, or sorry, most scholars actually think the technique that's being described here in this story is actually much more involved. 
And if you don't know those terms, think just really big net, okay? And it had, it had floats across the top and weights across the bottom. And you would, look, you would put it out in one part of the lake in the deep waters, which is where Jesus sent them. And then you would row like carefully. But the whole goal was to form this vertical invisible wall that fish could, uh, that fish could swim into. And then... And then, uh, it, you know, it required a very highly involved technique to actually collect the net without losing all the fish. That was the way you got a lot of fish, and that was usually how you fished it at night. And uh, why is all that important? Because I want you to see that in that just little clause of Jesus saying, go into the deep water and let down your nets, Peter, Jesus is actually calling Peter to hours worth of work. This is more than just throw a line over the side of the boat and see what happens. Peter along in a highly been very involved in, or Peter would have been very familiar with. And so here's your role reversal. Jesus is the master fisherman teaching Peter. And when they, Jesus is vocation than Peter is. And the revelation that completely undoes Peter is that Jesus is saying, I might, and these are my fish, and they respond to my will. He's completely undone in the disorientation of, uh, of this role reversal he experiences. He's completely undone, and that's why you sinful man, O oh Lord, what's he doing? He's trying to widen that gap between him and Jesus again. Peter's amazement of who Jesus is gives way to a deep sense of his unworthiness. And you know what I love about this story? Is that Jesus has no problem rebuking things. He rebukes diseases that are seeking to harm people he loves. He rebukes demons. But you know what he won't rebuke? Are the confessions of a sinner who are sitting in the boat next to him. The reassurance of Jesus comes at just the right moment, doesn't it? You don't have to be afraid. There is nothing about what, that, about what Peter is realizing in Jesus' presence that makes, Pete, that makes Jesus uncomfortable at all. And immediately after Peter's experience, Peter experiences all of this deep disorientation he also experiences the deep reassurances of Christ's ongoing affection for him. And that's when he's given an object lesson that explains what Jesus was up to in those moments. When Jesus was teaching the crowd, he was fishing. One guy put it this way. He said, Christ uses Peter's boat as a pulpit from whence to throw the net of the gospel over his hearers. He's saying, what we're doing right now, that just points to what I was just doing when I was teaching from your boat. And that's not the the only time we'll see Jesus teach from a boat. He does it again in Mark chapter 4. It's really interesting, but the, the content is a little different. He, he, it's from there he actually tells the parable of the sower, which if you're familiar with it, it's a story about someone who sows seed far and wide, looking for it to take root in all kinds of places. And when Jesus told that story, what was he doing? He was talking about what he was actually doing. 
He, he said, I am sowing seeds amongst you right now. And in much the same way, when Jesus teaches Peter about fishing, he's giving him an object lesson that says, this is what I'm actually doing right now. I'm fishing for people. You're catching fish for death. You're catching fish for their death. But I'm catching men and women for their life. Jesus is in the business of saving humanity. And when he says to Peter, from now on you will be catching men, he has drafted Peter into a whole new vocation. That's what Peter experienced. And so we see what Peter saw, we see what Peter experienced, but what did Peter know at this point? Well, I think you can look at these stories and actually see that he didn't know all that much about who Jesus was. You get a couple of hints. Uh, and, it, and, and the first one is just how, Pe- how Peter addresses Jesus. In verse 5, he uses this term of respect. He calls him master. That would have been a, just a general term of respect that you would use when you're talking to somebody that you respect. It might be, be kind of like me saying, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, something like that. General, general respect. But in verse 8, when he's undone, what term does he use? He calls him Lord. Now that's a term that you would use for someone in authority. And Peter's beginning to understand that Jesus has afforded that authority in some way. He's kind of growing in his understanding. That's one. You also see what Peter knows in just his sense of self-awareness when he's undone in the boat. What did he say? What was he most concerned about? As he shared space with Jesus, he said, depart from me for I am what? I am a sinful man. It's a similar response to the one that Moses had with God. And to the Ezekiel had with God. It's this awareness. I can't help but be concerned with my own impurity, right? And this doesn't mean that Peter is yet convinced that Jesus is the who really know who Jesus is are the demons, right? A long up and down road in Peter's life before he makes this com- the famous confession that Je- he knows that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But he knows enough to walk away from everything he ever thought he knew in order to go down the unfamiliar path that Jesus is laying out for him. He knows enough to be able to say, Wherever that guy is going, that's where I want to be. He doesn't have his Christology worked out necessarily. There's a lot that Jesus still has to teach him. And the only point that I just want to make is it is incredibly easy for us to boil Christianity down into the things that we know. But the walk of the Christian is one that truly trusts Jesus. Peter Peter doesn't know a lot about Jesus, but what we see is, and that's the call. And there are many of us here who who maybe have been walking with Jesus for quite some time, and maybe we've stewarded our minds and our faith together, and that's great. And there's some of us here who might be young in our faith. But I want all of you to hear that the, the call to follow Jesus is wide open to all who would trust themselves to him. Last Wednesday night... Uh, we had a congregational dinner here. 
Uh, and that was a lot of fun. I uh, really enjoyed being with you guys. But we heard from Matt, uh, who prayed earlier. Our, he's our discipleship pastor. We heard from Matt about uh, just kind of some of the discipleship efforts of our church. And he defined discipleship for us. So what did he say? He said, discipleship is following Jesus. And that's what Peter, that's what we see in Peter. They left everything. And he followed Jesus. Peter became a disciple of Jesus in these moments. Now, I can't, I can't say with certainty what shape your life is going to take. Your priorities, your work, your stress load, thinking about maybe other options, if that's you, I don't know. I love having those conversations with people, by the way. But... My hope for you right now is that for how you think about the future, you would mostly just be asking the question, where is Jesus leading me right now? Because wherever he's going. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, lead us. Help us to trust your exercise of power on our behalf. And lead us along by the hand. Help us to trust.